seed grower way back when and was looking for information about how to grow seeds, how to do seed saving, how to do variety improvement, make varieties better, and came across some of Organic Seed Alliance's information back, you know, whatever that was, the early 2000s. Um, through a process, uh, first I started contacting them, just wanting to get information. Hey, how do I grow this? How do I grow that? What should I? Um, but then also as I was working on the seed farm, I wanted to learn more about seeds, more about variety improvement, and started asking some of the folks at OSA at the time, where can I get more information? How can I learn this? And they sort of started steering me towards different schools and things like that I could um, be involved in. And so when I went back to school, I became more involved with OSA at the time. We worked on some participatory breeding projects where we would, where I worked with a farmer when I was in graduate school, improving some of their varieties and also worked with OSA on that. And so after school, I went out to Washington, which is where their home base is, and was splitting my time working part-time on this larger seed production farm and part-time with them. And then we've been working with OSA ever since then, um, kind of brought the work down here to California. And so why the interest in seeds? Because you started out as a biology major, right? Yeah. How did the turn happen where you thought, okay, I'm I'm interested in seeds and seed saving? Yeah, I... Yeah, the first kind of twist in my life, I guess, was realizing that I wanted, I I loved science. I loved understanding how nature, you know, trying to understand nature better. I also had previously been doing computer science in school and just, I, well, I really enjoyed it in a lot of ways, just the future that I envisioned for myself sitting in front of a screen for the rest of my life just seemed a little bleak. Kind of sucks the fun out of it. Yeah, I mean, so I started thinking, what's something where I can do science and still get my hands dirty and be outside and started thinking about agriculture and agricultural science broadly back when I was an undergrad and then really kind of fell into it just flipping through. I graduated uh, my undergrad, did it at uh, Humboldt State and had after school looking for an opportunity. I'd been working on a farm. There's like the Bayside Community Park Farm. Um, I'd been working on that while I was in school here, you know, way back, you know, in 2000 and uh, was graduated, was kind of thinking about the next steps and had been flipping through one of these, you know, catalogs of places where you could apprentice, like in, you know, woof, like you could be able to work on working farms and learn from them. And just was looking through and seeing you know, what was interesting and came across this farm in New Mexico that was called Jardín del Alma and said, we grow food for our sustenance and for the farmer's market, but we also grow all these seed crops of varieties that are you know, adapted to the, southeast, or the Southwest, are ones that are really important to us. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of people who grew seeds and saved seeds and that was part of their farm and it just seemed like wow that's such an interesting different part of the plant's life cycle and a part like a bigger part of the process that i never really thought about and so i just kind of dove in i you know talked on the phone and then hopped on a greyhound bus and spent two years out in new mexico working with this incredible farm and wonderful family and that was really where i found the passion for 
seed work, I think one of the things that really stuck with me when I was out there, I remember we were harvesting, you know, I'd been, I'd been spending the summer harvesting all these different seeds, in particular, I remember harvesting these tomatoes, the Cherokee purple variety, and, you know, each week we'd harvest it and squeeze the seeds out and you let the seeds ferment in order to process them and get all the seeds all clean. And at the, you know, at the end of the year, we had this um, Ziploc baggie full of tomato seed and um, the, far, the, the farm owner uh, had uh, collected maybe like four ounces of these seeds and separated them out for this large, larger tom tomato produce grower that lived closer to Albuquerque. And he came down and visited and was just so excited. He, he was like, this is going to be able to plant you know, four acres of our tomato crops this year. And just knowing like the care that you know, we had all put into like choosing like, okay, this is out of our patch. Like these are the best plants and the best fruits and the best seed that all of that work, you know, would, was so important because that was going to impact how well this farmer in turn was able to grow their tomatoes and how those varieties would work for them. And if it was, you know, they were going to be disease free and vigorous plants. And I just could see as a seed grower, this opportunity to have this really big impact on the farming community. And so that got me really excited. And also just the opportunity, so often we were working with different, you know, we're working with varieties that had a lot of variation. And sometimes some plants would fail in the tough New Mexico heat or the winds um, or the dry, you know, the dry conditions. We'd only get to water basically every three weeks. We'd get access to this irrigation. And so some things made it, some things didn't. And I knew that, you know, in that process, we were acting as, you know, forces of evolution and able to improve these varieties, strengthen them for these local, somewhat unique conditions. And so also being able to have this more, this deeper connection and part of the food and plant life cycle that you, I didn't experience as much. I mean, I got to experience a little bit as just a produce grower, but when I started interacting with seeds, I got to feel just this deeper connection that was really exciting. And are are farmers normally the ones that are breeding for seeds like that? I thought I read a blog, it was a blog post by you, and it discussed how farmers aren't really the cultivators of seeds like they used to be. Now it's all schools, universities that are, engineering these seeds and are holding on to them is that does that ring a bell is that true would you say i mean it, it's it's a mix so i would say on one hand obviously so much of the varieties that we have today the, the food that we eat today all of that is built on the backs of thousands of years of farmers gardeners stewards of our seeds so you know, so much of the improvement and adaptation and evolution that's happened in all of our varieties has been done by all of these generations. And that work continues and has continued on, you know, unbroken in a lot of ways throughout the world. You know, so if I think we probably said, you know, what percent of farmers globally save seed, it's probably a large percent. Here what in, about in the U.S.? Yes, here uh, in the U.S., however, there had been this transition from farmers primarily saving their own seeds to 
you know, like there had been seed catalogs even back like in the 1800s, for example. But what would happen for a lot of seed catalogs is they would expect to kind of make one sale. Like they would be like the, the seed discoverers, right? They would say, hey, we found this new variety and we're going to sell it to you. But they knew once the farmers got it, once they got that seed, that was probably the last time they'd sell to those farmers. And so that really started to change in the 30s with the invention of the, the development of creating hybrid seeds, ones where you would cross two different varieties basically together and then sell that first generation cross. And in that first generation, everything would look nice and uniform. But then if you tried to save that seed, you'd start to get a mix where some of them look like one of the original parents, some look like another one, some look like a mix in between. And so they weren't as reliable. And so that was this kind of biological form of protecting the seed company's intellectual property. Um, and then on top of that, more and more legal forms of intellectual property started to develop. And all of that in combination with sort of the specialization and concentration that just happened more broadly in agriculture shifted things away in the U.S. from farmers saving their own seed to primarily buying those seeds from companies. As far as who's kind of developing and improving those varieties, I would say right now we have an interesting mix. Definitely the, the, the bulk of the research, the bulk of the, the money that goes into research, the bulk of the money that goes into seed production and release, distribution, all of those things is in the hands of the, the big seed companies, kind of the, the, the big four that control you know, the majority of the seed market globally and, and in the U.S. There's also um, and kind of another trend that had happened is you had refer, mentioned kind of our universities doing a lot of this work. They kind of, at a certain point, the, the agricultural universities had done a lot of the pioneering work on developing more what we call modern varieties, ones that might have really strong disease-resistant packages, ones that would make use of some of that hybrid technology to create these uniform, highly productive varieties or varieties that would produce well in high input situations, um, as well as varieties that served farmers of all, um, I don't mean to disparage the work that they did, because a lot of those public universities and the public university plant breeders did really have a service mindset of trying to serve the farming community uh, wherever they were located. And so, you know, these different universities would develop varieties that were better for their regions and did a lot of really good work. As the seed companies kind of became more and more powerful and also invested more and more in their own research departments, they really made a push at the universities to say, you know, what we need from you is we need your student pipeline. We need, you know, you to train scientists that we can employ, and we need you to do kind of pre-breeding work. We don't want to have to spend the time of like starting with like a this wild tomato that's, you know, a tiny, you know, tiny little green tomato fruit, but it might have this important source of resistance to a particular disease. We don't have to do the work of trying to take that and somehow get those genes all the way in by many, many generations of crossing, have to get those into our modern varieties. You do all this, what we call, what they would call pre-breeding work, and will be the ones actually developing like the commercially viable varieties and selling those. And so there had been this split where a lot of the universities, um, both through company pressure, but also through kind of internal politics around um, 
always, you know, at the university, you always want to be doing something new and novel. Um, and traditional plant breeding wasn't exciting enough. Um, started to shift away from plant breeding work towards more basic genetic research, genetic engineering research, some of this pre-breeding work and not really necessarily serve the farming communities the way they had. Well, there's more money in the genetic engineering, right? Can't you patent the seeds that you devise that way? So that's a big part of it. So the way that, um, the way, and, and I don't, we should, we didn't want to have our policy director on to, he would know all the, 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 the exact dates and, and, and numbers, but essentially there are kind of a few different ways that intellectual property and seed works. And the, the, very earliest um, development was around asexually producing things, things like flowers or apples, and there are things that are called plant patents that prevented people from being able to reproduce these clonally reproducing crops without some you know, form of agreement with whoever had originally developed them. And that had been it for a while until, um, I think in the 70s, this law got passed through Congress called the Plant Variety Protection Act. And this you'll see, if you flip through seed catalogs, you'll see on some varieties it says PVP on it. And that stands for Plant Variety Protection. That was the, the last law basically that Congress actually passed around plant intellectual property saying that. And, and that one had been worked out with farmers and breeders to carve out some really important exceptions, exemptions for that allowed first it, would, it's, it allowed farmers to still save their own seed of those varieties. You couldn't commercialize a variety had this kind of intellectual property that had a plant variety protection on it. You couldn't turn around and grow that seed and sell it, but you could save it for your own use. And it also allowed um, farmers and breeders to take those varieties, even if they were protected and make crosses between them and other varieties and create new materials that stop those varieties from being these genetic dead ends. Um, Before that law and those yeah. allowances, if yeah. you bought those seeds and you grew it, yeah, you could, could you save? You could save the seeds and regrow it. No, you could do whatever you want. Before oh, you that can. Law. So once you have the yeah. seeds, yeah, you're good. You don't need right. to buy more seeds. Right. Exactly. If you were in a place that you know a lot had the right kind of climate and conditions to grow them, so this was the first pretty big restriction that happened in the seventies. Then in the 80s, 90s, um, and up till today, there have been a series of court decisions, primarily the Supreme Court, that this was never part of the original um, legislature. This wasn't something that Congress authorized. And in fact, Congress very explicitly kind of uh, put in these exceptions into the only law that they had had saying that, yes, that we want to encourage some degree of intellectual property for good or ill. Um, but we still want to make sure farmers can save their own seed and that people can keep breeding these varieties. But um, the regular kind of forms of patents, the patents that you have on, you know, on toasters or microphones or whatever, don't apply to living materials. So the Supreme Court came in, and starting with genetic engineering, though this has really expanded out, started to have rulings that said that life can be patented using traditional patents. And these traditional patents can 
allow you you can they can be very broad and they can be very restrictive so that you can't save seed of this variety even for your own use you can't even necessarily like collect data on this variety without permission you can't um be able to make new crosses with a particular variety um sometimes it's even genetic really broad genetic traits not necessarily genetically engineered traits but things like heat tolerant broccoli or lettuce that has um red le red inner leaves um those that but so all of the, that's kind of sort of where we're at today is that these plant patents of these traditional utility patents is what they're called have been are are being used by everyone to restrict seeds really broadly but it started with kind of the, the first toehold, the first wedge between what Congress had originally said was that there should be these exceptions for seed saving um, and where we're at today was, as you're alluding to, in GMO crops and genetically engineered crops that, uh, that the courts, not Congress, said that this genetic engineering, this is a and novel inventions, these should be patentable. And that ability to patent them was really allowed the companies now to say, okay, we can own this, not just, you know, until the seeds get out into the world, but we can own this forever. And the patent itself, you know, we can show our shareholders, we have all of these patents, they themselves become valuable, not just the seed, but the intellectual property. And so which is pretty crazy. It's I mean, imagine yeah. if McDonald's patented a burger and you had to go to McDonald's to get that burger. Yeah. Like, no, you can't just you can't make a burger at your house. No, you have to go buy this. Right. And no, it's crazy. And especially because again, keeping in mind, if you look at like what the ancestor of corn or tomatoes looks like, it looks vastly different than what we're working with today. They're you know, small and not very edible and don't yield very much. And 99.9% .9 of that work happened through, you know, farmers, gardeners, you know, stewards of the earth improving these seeds. And then that last 0.1%, you know, that these companies do, they say, okay, we're going to put a patent on everything, all parts of this now. And so they've taken, you know, they've, this this pyramid and they put the last little shiny you know piece on the very top of it and say we own it all now you know because we created this part that's how it works right? yeah and that's how it works um and so that's been a real tragedy um and something that osa and i i'm less involved in that our policy side um uh, kiki hubbard who's our policy director does a bunch of work trying to push back against this i would say that you know, on the that is kind of the doom and gloom. The the positive side, I'd say, is that there's still, despite all of that, there's a real resurgence and growth of smaller seed companies, regionally adapted seed companies, farmers saving their own seed, public universities relearning their mandate of public service and 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 developing and releasing varieties with fewer intellectual property restrictions. So it's not all going in that direction but certainly the you know when we look at where the the biggest money is and we look globally it's it's pretty bad can you do me a favor just pull yeah. that just a little bit close just yeah, bring yeah. it in a little bit yeah perfect um that's always what i'd heard with i think it's monsanto 
Do they sell seeds? Yeah, they're well. They're, they're they've they've consolidated now. Um, Monsanto has been bought by Bayer. So I remember that that was a yeah. big buy. Yeah, I I had read I think it was a while ago about seeds from one farm that had purchased them somehow ending up on an, on another farm maybe being blown over or something and then Monsanto was trying to sue that other farm for their intellectual property because now they had their seeds or they got they were crossbred or so, something weird like that and they were trying to go after this farm because you didn't buy our seeds yeah there had been a lot of legal back and forth as the companies had been trying to not just enforce their intellectual property but also create fear around it so that people would be um yeah would would um feel threatened by the potential of a lawsuit and be that much more careful now what is your stance on genetic engineering seeds where you guys are the organic seed alliance do you have a stance on that are you guys organic because you believe it's better or it's just more accessible yeah i think that what we feel is that organic and is the best label that we have in the sense that there are plenty of flaws in certified the the organic certification process and there are plenty of really great farmers and practices that are not part of the organic certification process and part of you know certified organic kind of the certified organic industry or the certified organic community that that all being said especially when we start to look at um and and so if i I guess i would say so if you're in a local community and you have a chance to go out to your farm and meet the farmer and talk to them and see how they're growing things and understand their practices it's you know the certification that you know whether you you use the label organic or regenerative or um, naturally grown um, that's not as important if you can have those direct connections understand those practices Um, but for so much of our produce it's so much of our food is we don't have a direct connection it's being you know shipped across the state or between states and processed and so the certification process is well it has lots of flaws is really the most robust process that we have to ensure that the food is grown in a way that's, um, you know, better, I would say, for the environment in a lot of ways. It's safer for the workers. It's safer for our health. And, well, again, I think there's lots of exceptions there. Um, you can say, well, you know, there's a lot of tillage, you know, a lot of turning over the ground in many organic farms that you know, is disrupting soil life or releasing, you know, CO2. Um, In general, when we look broadly across kind of the impacts of organic farms versus non-organic farms, we see that the, you know, the environmental and and the health benefits are improved. And that process is, it also just gives you, again, if you don't have a chance to be able to actually meet your farmer, it, 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 gives you a certain degree of surety that you don't have you know i mean we see so many labels on our food products now right it says you know it might say sugar free and then it's like full of fat or fat free and it's full of sugar and then all of these you know people slap many many labels on there and it's really confusing and the 
you know, organic label does mean something. It's, it's backed by a pretty rigorous process that frankly can frustrate farmers sometimes by how much their, you know, fields and their books are, are looked over to make sure that they're doing things in accordance with what they, you know, they agreed to do to be certified organic. And the, the genetic engineering thing is really interesting and question and debate. I think that I would say there's a few pieces there. Um, the, the first is, I guess, basically it is part of the organic standard. And at this point, it's something that if someone's looking to be able to, you know, for whatever reasons would like to avoid genetically engineered food, there's an expectation that if they buy something organic, that is not genetically engineered. And so that label has, you know, meant that since it very first was, um, became official. And so that, you know, is kind of part of the expectation of what it means at this point. So some of that is just the clarity of the, the label. Um, the other pieces of kind of how genetic engineering and organic work together, um, I, I think that personally, the, one of the big flaws in genetic engineering that you already have been alluding to is that it's been so tied up in corporate control. And that's because, in part, genetic engineering is a really expensive um, it requires massive capital investment and um and it re and it's tied up with being able to one of the original motivations was being able to patent things and so often genetic engineering helps encourage concentration in our seed industry helps encourage more and more of a greater and greater share of our seed being controlled by these handful of companies the other thing is is that it's a it's a tool and so often where the tool has been used has been if you kind of look at the 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 products that the the, the genetically engineered products that have been out on the market and um, you know some of the number one products have been ones that allow tolerance of herbicides and pesticides so that they can be sold as a package it's developed in a package there's not a not a coincidence that, you know, Bayer or, um, you know, BASF, these big chemical companies are also the seed companies. It's because they can sell a package of seeds that can tolerate these chemicals plus the chemicals. And so you see, you know, original, you know, the original GMO material, you know, is Roundup ready. You could grow, you could put as much Roundup on there as you want and the plants will survive it. You know, and then as weeds began to, um, you know, evolution caught up to round up and they start to get these quote unquote super weeds that can also through natural selection, right? Not through genetic engineering, but through natural selection, you know, weeds have now been able to evolve to tolerate Roundup. Well, now it comes with, you know, 2,4-D, um, you know, much more noxious herbicide, 2,4-D tolerant seeds. So now you can dump as much 2,4-D on your plants as you want and the, you know, the crop plants will survive. And it's, you know, convenient that you can also buy those same chemicals from the same company that's selling you the seed and they make, you know, more money than if they had developed varieties that were, for example, more vigorous and able to outcompete the weeds um, or able to yield well, even in the face of weeds. Um, so there's, what I would say is that the genetic engineering is, is 
is a tool, and the tool has been used in often cases not in the service necessarily of farmers or eaters, but in the service of this um, business plan. The bottom line. Yeah. Uh-huh. The yeah. chemical aspect scares the shit out of you yeah. when you start talking yeah. about Roundup. I think yeah. I read a study that, I'm going to throw this out there, people yeah. fact check me on this, that 70% of Americans had Roundup in their urine. Andy, see if you can find that because I might have <laughs> just made that up. But in in engineering these crops to be more resistant and then having to use more chemicals for the weeds or a different type of chemical, is that, or is this just whack-a-mole? Are we just yeah going back and forth when then when the weeds adapt to that, then we'll create even harsher chemicals? I mean, that's, that's, that's the worry. I mean, that's certainly the path we've been on and it doesn't seem like as far as anyone I talk to knows that there's, you know, that, that path is, going to diverge yeah it seems like it, it because yeah first off it's kind of it's short-term thinking it's like okay um we've solved this for now and also because again it's not like although it's not good for the farmer's health it's not good for the environment it's not good for the eaters um it is like those be, again it's like the 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 the, the seed slash chemical companies are it's a win-win for them yeah, what do they care? Uh-huh. They're right. selling the seeds and the product. Right. right. Did you find anything on that? Yeah, it says uh, as of July 12, 2022, more than 80% of Americans have a widely used herbicide lurking in their urine. Urine, a new government study suggests a chemical known as glyph- glyphosate, glyphosate. Mm-hmm. is Round probably up. carcinogenic to humans, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer has said. That's a mouthful. Uh, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, a well-known weed killer. 80%. Wow. Yeah, that should that should scare the shit out of people. Yeah. It's wild, and it's just yeah, mm-hmm. Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when you do that, when you are engineering these plants to be more resistant to these herbicides yeah. and pesticides, does that have any negative effect on the seeds or on the plant or on the food? Or it's pretty safe in that regard. It's just the aspect that now we're dumping more of those chemicals on the plant. Yeah, I mean that's been you know, another source of controversy. And I think that um, one of the things, you know, when, when part of the part of the kind of mm, just coincidence of all of these things, you know, as the organic standard was originally being developed, genetic engineering was really brand new. And so, you know, some of those, I don't know if the organic standard was being developed today, honestly, how genetic engineering would fit in with that. I will say that um, and there there hasn't been, I would say, a lot of evidence that the genetic engineering process itself is necessarily risky. However, um, one of the things that it allows, again, as a tool, is that it allows for kind of more rapid and more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, more uh, extreme uh, new traits to be uh, traits to be brought into plants and and that that never existed in those plants before or maybe never existed in you know the plant kingdom before and and that and that can happen really relatively rapidly the um when we think about like for example you know to dive into controversy i mean we have medicines that are you know 
are products of genetic engineering that we've taken often, um, you know, and, and many people would be concerned about that. Those medicines, however, had to go through this extensive, and again, you know, this opening up a controversial can of worms, but nonetheless, they did have to go through, you know, pre-human testing, you know, phase one testing, phase two testing, testing on, you know, thousands of people to see. Um, none of that exists for food products. And so you could, and this is always the worry, like you could very easily create a, um, you know, there, there's this, this push around kind of like, um, you know, pharmaceutical, gr growing pharmaceutical products in your food. Um, this would be like a great way to be able to create medicine really cheaply. Um, but that pollen, if it's something like corn, that pollen drifts around um, and might go into something unintended. Um, those products um, also, the, the, the USDA process for regulating GMOs doesn't really, it, it, it has this big, it relies on company data internal company data that says, yes, this is safe. And then they give this thing, they call it grass, generally recognized as safe. They say, you know, yeah, we think this is safe. This is fine. And that's more or less the end of that safety testing. And so regardless of how you might feel about, you know, if genetic engineering is inherently safe or not, genetic engineering is a tool that can allow you to create things that we are going to be ingesting that could be just as risky as any pharmaceutical drug that you might take without going through the kind of process that drugs go through at all. So there's there's no third-party testing. The, it's all internal company data, and then they just hand it off, and it gets the check mark. In general, I think that there are processes where theoretically the USDA could step in, but as far as I know, that basically never happens. Yeah. How crazy is that? It's pretty that, crazy. That's not exactly... A comforting thought. Right. And so that's why, you know, again, for people, you know, regardless of, you know, whether you fundamentally feel like genetic engineering is just um, a, um, you know, a, a, a flawed technology that you, you know, or if you feel like, well, maybe sometimes it could be good to add some more beta carotene into this food crop or whatever. Um, the fact that there isn't a safe or there, there isn't a thorough vetting process for those products is, is one more reason why people might say, you know what, I just don't want to take a chance. And that's where, you know, one reason why organic, one appeal of organics for some people is to say, okay, I've got this label. I know that I don't have to, I'm not relying on the, the USDA's non-testing. Non yeah. That's, it's very uncomfortable hearing that. Do you, I mean, that's like almost like going to Big Tobacco and saying, can you provide data on the effect of cigarettes? Are mm -hmm. they bad for people? Let's, I want you to do the data. You handle that and then right. let me know. Yep. What would they come up with? Right. No, cures, no right. cigarettes cure cancer. Right. You should right. smoke a pack a day. Right. Yep. Do you think, in your opinion, I'm not sure how well, you, how well versed you would be with this, do you think that these companies are looking at long-term effects of what that those crops might have on the environment or on people, or it's all short-term bottom line, bottom dollar viewpoint. I guess I would say it's hard to know what their internal science is because they don't share yeah, that. Obviously. <laughs> um, it seems like, you know, I've, I've, you know, having gone through 
a you know I got my degrees and uh, my graduate degrees in plant breeding and plant genetics and worked with people that you know now gone on to work at these companies and have some connection to some you know have have maintained some connections over the years I would say that most of the time what I hear is that the attitude is pretty you know like okay what you know what's our how are we looking this quarter um you know how are we looking this year there's a pretty strong focus on seeing you know just like in so many corporate situations seeing short-term return on investment wanting to um avoid certainly avoid liability um if at all possible um but not necessarily out of any kind of care for the world but just in terms of how does that affect their bottom line well the whole the whole foundation of what they stand on seems short-term goal-oriented we're gonna kind of screw up the environment with these pesticides maybe with these seeds as long as we hit that bottom dollar there there doesn't seem to be a long-term view established in that like with a mom and pop farm where okay we live on this land our kids are going to live on this land our grandparents worked on this land. We need to ensure that it's healthy so it keeps producing. Yeah, yeah, right. And I mean, that extends beyond just the genetic engineering, but it's also just the way that they do their breeding, their variety development in general, is that though it's very hard to get access to this data because the companies, this is part of what's limited by their patents, um, the information we do have is that over time, if you think about individual farmers, you know, let's let's go back 80 years where individual farmers were saving their own corn seed. Um, each of those farms, they kind of had their own variety. And so, and within each of those varieties, there was genetic diversity in that variety. And then between each farm, there's genetic diversity between those varieties on the other farms and scatter this across, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of farms on the United States as companies have consolidated as a company has bought another company and then that company in turn has been swallowed up by another and again and again until we've gotten to like these big four each time that happens what typically happens is that the companies will kind of think about it, they go through the seed list and if company A had a hundred varieties company B had a hundred varieties they're not going to offer 200 varieties anymore. They're going to look and say, okay, what are the 100 most profitable across these two companies? Drop the ones that don't make the money, the ones that maybe are, you know, adapted to a slightly less um, commercially important region, um, ones that maybe are a little more specialty, um, ones that maybe are thrive well in dry conditions, but not when you pump them full of um, fertilizer. Um, those varieties get dropped, and if nobody is around saving those seeds, those varieties get lost forever. And so what we also see is that just first off, just by the very nature of corporate concentration in the seed industry and these business motives, we see this big loss in diversity. But also, even within each of those companies, there's such a short-term focus that kind of the the, the rule of plant breeding in these companies is what they say is they cross what they say elite by elite they're very very most productive variety by their next most productive variety and they just keep on doing that again and again and what you see is that these varieties become really really genetically inbred um, to the point where there's 
relatively genetic, almost no genetic diversity within the variety, almost no genetic diversity between the varieties. And I'm talking really mostly, like, to be honest, the, the, the vast majority of the money that is in seeds is going to be in, you know, corn and soybeans, you know, and then you see, you know, some of the other big field crops and then some, you know, some of the vegetable crops, things like tomatoes and sweet corn. Um, but, you know, the more money there is, the more it gets closer to this model of, really really limited genetic diversity just like okay we just we can't afford to fiddle around and you know make crosses to diversify our genetics we that's going to be slow you know it might take years to like get up to the yields of our most elite varieties and so they just keep on crossing essentially what are often like you know functionally like you know brother and sister you know, varieties um, that are already fairly genetically related. And so it gets more and more narrow. And this had been something, there had been a crisis in the 70s where um, it was the southern corn leaf blight that had, it was a really minor disease, but because so much of the varieties were all so genetically related, they all were susceptible to this disease. And it had never been a problem before, but because everything was, you know, basically genetically identical. It just like wiped out millions and millions of acres. And the companies kind of after that said, oh no, we're going to do a better job of stewarding our varieties um, genetics, but nothing's changed. Nothing's really changed. Yeah. It's fallen back to the same thing. So we're still at this sort of risk where, you know, if, you know, a minor disease, a minor pest, this is part of the reason sometimes why we see these pest epidemics is because it's, you know, in a more natural system where, you know, okay, only, you know, 10% of the plants are super susceptible and, you know, and, uh, you know, 80% of the plants are a little bit susceptible and 10% of them are totally resistant. And there's this variation, like the, the pest can't establish themselves the same way as if it's like, oh, this is just this big field of you know, delicious, thing. like easy to eat stuff that's all the same. And if a pest can thrive on one plant, it can thrive on 100 million plants. That's the problem with bananas right now, right? is the bananas that we think of as bananas are all just clones. Right. And there's some fungus. I think it's in South America right now. There's some fungus that is just tearing through it. Yeah. And they're having to burn the banana plant that's infected and then clear out some absurd radius around it and dig up the roots because they're cloned. Right. So if it spreads, it's just going to it's going to burn through like wildfire because right. yeah. there's no genetic diversity. It's all yep. the exact, literally the exact same thing. Yep. Yeah. Same thing like with coffee. Yeah. So many of the clonal crops. Are, I didn't know coffee was a clone. Yeah. Primarily. Yeah. They're, they're, or they're very genetically similar. Yeah. Doesn't seem like a smart business investment. So yeah, we're just going to do the exact same thing and hope that nothing goes wrong. Right. It, I mean, it works again. It's a short term thing. If you found something that's like, oh my gosh, this thing you know, yields 20% better than everything else. And you're and trying to maximize your short-term profit, trying to compete with your neighbor. Um, you go with the thing that, you know, you say, okay, you know, instead of saying, all right, we're going to do a little bit of the 20%, you know, the, the, this, this, this quote-unquote elite, highly productive variety. It's, you know, if you do a little bit and your neighbor does it all and they yield better than you, then all of a sudden you're at a disadvantage. So yeah, it's, it's hard, um, without more, um, 
public pressure in a lot of ways to push back against these perverse business incentives. You know, it's unfortunately it's that, you know, our food system is broken. Is broken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. broken. Does yeah. it screw you guys over their business practices for the organic seeds? Because if they're developing these crops that are resistant to these things and then weeds and other things are adapting to that and getting stronger. Is that screwing you guys over? Because now you're dealing with that as well, even though you were fine before they before they came into the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, organic producers. There, there are several ways. Yeah, the the conventional seed and food industry and farming industry makes it harder for organic. One is, like you said, this is creating super pests, super weeds that then spread. Yeah, then then spread, you know, likewise, um, just the, if you, this this is like, this is now with the, I was mentioning earlier, kind of the, the switch over from this Roundup Ready varieties to this 24D, these 24D Ready varieties, these varieties that are, you know, able to tolerate this really, I mean, 24D is kind of like a, you know, kind of part of the original um, Agent Orange, you know, mix, like it's, you know, pretty, um, uh, harsh chemical um it drifts when people spray it and so now farmers are buying 24d ready seed even if they're not planning on planting 24d or not even planning on spraying it themselves just because if they don't and their neighbor sprays it all of a sudden they've got crop loss um and if you're organic that's not going to be the case this is i know like a really great seed grower up in north dakota and it's just a huge challenge for her because they're surrounded on four sides by conventional growers and there's always like i feel like every couple of years they have a big crop loss due to herbicide drift that comes into their you know non-gmo non-herbicide tolerant crops well not to mention when it rains you got to think that some of that is getting washed off the plants right. and off the topsoil right. and it's going somewhere right it's not just staying right. on their right. parcel it's it's moving right Right, you know, and then and then the third piece is the seed companies. They that all of the investment that is happening is towards these really high the, these varieties that will yield well if they're given this if they're part of this package. You know, if they get the really high input fertilizer, they get the herbicides, they get the pesticides, and so if if most of the seed varieties are out there are all being developed for those systems, then if an organic grower is planting those seeds and not using that system, those varieties, you know, there's often this talk about, um, you know, a yield hit that you take with, that you take when you're growing organic, that, you know, you're not going to yield as well as conventional, you know, and some of that, um, some of that yield hit has been seen in you know at least in some research in some situations is really because of the seeds it's when you're planting seeds that have been bred and adapted for these high input you know chemically intensive conditions and if you're growing them in non-chemically intensive conditions they don't do that's that's not the environment they were bred for and so when you're then able to breed and develop seeds for those conditions um, you see that that yield gap disappears to some degree and so that's another piece is just as more and more these companies, you know, little like so little seed companies that previously as an organic grower might have been able to find 
the varieties that do really well for them. Well, now that seed company got bought up by, you know, by Bayer and the only the varieties that were ones that would be profitable, that would yield high as part of this, you know, Bayer seed package are kept. And the ones that the organic growers maybe previously had relied on and had done well for them, those get dropped from the catalog. And so this has been an ongoing struggle or varieties that previously were available non-GMO, they now, those varieties are new and improved and they add in the genetic engineered traits. They drop the, the older non-GMO one and they say, now, you know, this is the, you know, there's like the temp temptation corn, sweet corn is like this really popular sweet corn that a lot of organic growers wanted, but then they came out with temptation two now with, you know, this uh, GMO, you know, genetically engineered gene stack on it. And everyone's just holding their breath, waiting for the companies to drop the old non-GMO temptation. And then they're going to be out of luck. How do they make these seeds more resistant to these chemicals? You know that process? Yeah, so it, it, it depends. Um, there's a lot of different ways. Um, some of this, and some of this has become, mm, this has really evolved pretty rapidly recently. So the technology is pretty leading like the, the previously what it was was in a lot of ways similar to in a in a traditional traditional old-fashioned plant breeding what you might do is you would grow a bunch of you know you, you'd screen quote-unquote screen you try and find a whole let's say you're trying to find tomatoes that are resistant to late blight um you'd get you know thousands you know seeds from thousands of varieties of tomatoes and also like tomato wild relatives ones that are you know not necessarily the same species but close enough that they sometimes can cross together and you would you know grow all these and then you'd you know see which ones survive to late blight and then you take those ones and you cross them to your best varieties and try and incorporate that late blight resistance into there a similar kind of thing would happen with genetic engineering but they would have it be a wider range of crops so instead of just like if you're looking for tomatoes instead of just with tomatoes and um, tomato wild relatives you might look across all these different species and then once they do that then they go through more of a, a investigation process where they try and isolate down what gene was it you know let's say instead of in tomatoes you found it in um i don't know in uh, plantains or something um um the the, the wild not not plantains in the sense of the banana relative but like the uh, with the wild plantain that you'd see around here just as an example let's say you saw it in there and then they go through a process of saying how do you what's the gene in here that is causing that resistance um so they do there's different kind of genetic studies that you can do to try and figure out what gene when that gene is there, cause the plants are resistant. When it's not there, it isn't. Once they've isolated, once they've identified that gene, then they go through this process where they will try and basically move that gene from the donor plant into the recipient. Um, and usually, that involves some um, methods of, you know, slicing out that gene, incorporating it into a, a bacteria um, and a virus and then using that to kind of infect the recipient plant and then those um and then that um that phage that that um virus will um infect and basically incorporate the dna into the plant and then from there once they've got it in the plant then they can 
You know, it's usually not as simple as that. You have to try lots of times, and it may or may not work, and it depends on where the gene gets incorporated. It might break other important genes when it gets incorporated, but once they've they try enough, then they find it, and it, you know, okay, we've moved the gene, um, and then they can start reproducing the seed. Um, in more recent times, there's a little more of that that happens, kind of where we start, you know, we're starting to have a better sense of like exactly how proteins interact together, um, you know, in chemical ways. And so there's more of this kind of actual synthesis of new genes rather than just, you know, the older GMO technology was more just being able to kind of broaden the pool of potential species that you could move genes between. And now there's more of a move towards being able to say, okay, based on what we think, the kind of protein that we think we need this gene to make, what is the DNA code that we need in order to make that protein? So sort of reverse engineer that. And then they can actually, you know, using some of these new technologies, like there's something called CRISPR, they can actually, you know, individually kind of, you know, nucleotide by nucleotide modify and, and, and match what they think, you know, the DNA needs to be in order to make the proteins that they think will work. And then they say, okay, and then they test and see, does it work? Um, and they'd be able to use CRISPR on plant genetics? Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the, 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 the future and even the present. Yeah. It's fascinating in the sense that people were so afraid with the emergence of CRISPR and that we'd be creating these superhumans. Yeah. And what would that do to society and, you know, what's going to happen? But it sounds like we've been doing that with these GMOs is we're kind of playing God in a sense of just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And yeah. no, it doesn't sound like there's any oversight as to somebody steering the car, looking down the road, saying, oh, there's a turn. We should watch out for that. It sounds like we're just going. Not a lot of oversight, no. Is that because people are just unaware or they don't know or the farmers don't have a big enough voice to say, hey, we need to, we need to start turning the ship. Why is that that it's just this progressive march down this path? That's a good question. Um, I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I feel like my cynical side says that, you know, a big part of this is just that big agribusiness and big seed has, they have good lobbyists and they have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of revolving door between, you know, the USDA regulatory system and these seed companies, you know, people coming from the seed companies into the USDA and then back again, um, things like that where, um, the relationships are pretty cozy and the, um, yeah, and there's not necessarily a ton of public pressure against it. Um, you know, the big, um, you know, as of now, you know, the, the big farming interest groups, you know, the big corn growers associations and stuff like that, they're not pushing back. Um, I mean, in some ways they are, you know, sometimes with like the exorbitant seed prices or things like that, but in general, you know, they're, you know, happy to get, higher yields every year um and, you know we haven't had a um crisis like the northern corn or the southern corn leaf blight since the 70s and so kind of like one of these things where you know until it happens we just keep on moving pushing forward down what seems like a pretty risky direction if that happened today with corn or with soy yeah it sounds like it would get pretty bad Again, we what's different between the 70s and now is we have 
less data about how incredibly genetically uniform it is, but to the best of people's understanding, yeah, probably worse that we have more genetic uniformity across more acreage. So yeah, I think we're more at risk now than we were then probably. That's so that's not good. No. What but again it it feels like this is just the progression that is happening. That it doesn't seem like there's there's any I mean, can you turn the ship? Can we is there a way to revert back or do we just keep going down until we have something like that in the seventies? And then maybe it shakes us or maybe we just keep going further. I mean, does it stop? Do GMOs become the norm? Because if all of these chemicals or these weeds are spreading out and are in surrounding areas, is it are we going to hit a point where it's not feasible to use organic seeds? Just because the viability won't be there, the crop yield will become so diminished that it won't work? I, I, I guess what I would say twofold one is i i i mean despite all this doom and gloom there are a lot of you know on on the policy side on the politics side there are a lot of people that are pushing really hard against all of these issues against the industry concentration pushing for better safety regulations um and there are there's more i guess receptivity in the current administration than there was in the last for example and there are you know there are good people in the administration there are good people in the department of agriculture and there is a lot of there is probably more pressure now than there has been in the past. And so, and there's more scientific evidence building around these risks. So, you know, how, how ultimately how well that pressure results in actual change, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard, hard to, to say. It's hard to say. Um, but to your other question about what does that mean for organic farmers, one of the things that you see with, good organic farming practices often is that the the many of the the kind of most successful organic farmers they don't tend to use silver bullets um they often aren't relying on a single single tool to manage their weeds for example um they might be basing this on you know, strategic timing of their planting, of growing varieties that are vigorous, of different tools for managing, you know, mechanically managing their weeds, um, you know, reducing the weed seed bank. There's, you know, they're, they're, they're often attacking any problem on their farm from several different angles. And that, you know, well, it is potentially slightly, it can be harder, especially for people that are just getting into it, it's a more robust system. And so um, compared to, yeah, just spraying and then saying, oh man, my spray isn't working anymore. Where's my new spray? You know, if you've got, you know, five different approaches that are kind of weaved together to attack the same problem as one, you know, becomes less effective, you can still lean on the others. And so I think that's that resilience that you can see in a lot of, you know, experienced successful organic farms is in fact, something that one of the nice things is that something that is can actually be a positive influence on agriculture more generally where some of those tools and techniques you start to see for example in the midwest there's this big boom in growing cover crops and growing you know crops over the winter time to foster the soil in conventional growers a lot of that you know all the so much of the research and 
development and perfection of like what varieties of cover crops, when to plant them, when to plow them down, um, was done by organic producers. And as that's being refined, like conventional non-organic producers are, you know, seeing the benefits of this and starting to incorporate it in themselves. Or like I had this example where there was a spinach grower down in, um, down in central California, who was a, a split operation, conventional and organic. And he, in his organic spinach, had started to experiment with this garlic extract to control um, mildew on his spinach. And it, he developed it and it was successful and basically replaced the chemicals he'd been using to control it on his conventional acreage with this garlic extract and kind of was able to carry that knowledge forward and so i think you see that there's a lot of really innovative solutions that organic growers do and that both you know in an i although i think your your point is really well taken that it's there's a lot that organic farming and farmers are a lot of challenges that they're faced with and those challenges aren't necessarily getting any better um that there is this uh ingenuity that you see and this multifaceted approach to farming that is something that helps give them both resilience but also hopefully will you know benefit agriculture more broadly can organic farmers compete at scale with large-scale industrial grows that use chemicals with solutions like that garlic that you mentioned would they be able to do feasibly do something at that size, we're well, talking like a large farm. I don't know how big right, a large farm right, would be, 10,000 yeah, acres right, or something. Right, like, so for example, that spinach grower, he grew, I think he was growing maybe like, you know, it's been a little while, so I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but it was somewhere around 6,000 acres of conventional and 2,000 of organic, um, you know, and then he started applying that to all of his organic, um, I mean, all of his conventional, um, you know, for many growers the i think that as you scale up it becomes um you know it becomes harder not necessarily to grow certified organic produce but it can be harder to incorporate all of the um really innovative techniques and technologies um and 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 you often see you know and I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just speculating why this might be. Some of it may also just be kind of the 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 nature of who's growing at that scale. You know, when you start talking about really large scale organic, it's often going to be people that are coming out of large scale conventional, um, or it's even a split operation. You know, Del Monte, you know, is going to grow conventional and organic, um, and so they will have. You know they'll they'll follow the letter of the law for you know what you need to do or not do for organic, but they're often still coming from you know the 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 farm managers that they're bringing on and the you know the people who are in charge of you know how this operation is going to go are often coming from it you know having absorbed really the the perspective of the large scale conventional farms and so they're a little less likely to kind of go, quote unquote, above and beyond the bare minimum of what the organic standard requires. 
yeah, why spend more money? Right. Just a little bit more money to do it this other way where you don't need these things. Right. If let's just buy the chemicals and save a couple bucks. Right. I guess there's you would need that incentive to be there for right. support. Right. There's yeah. There's yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's because there's often sort of this. I mean, and and again, I think it's still you're still as especially as a consumer, you know, and also as like uh, thinking about the farm workers that are usually not, you know, there's not a lot of thought for them. I mean, they're the ones at the front line getting the impacts of these chemicals much more than we are eating the food. Um, and they're the ones that are getting blown over by crop dusters, um, you know, but um, that the organic is, you know, even the kind of the bare minimum of organic is a vast improvement for them um, in terms of what they're not getting sprayed with. Um, but there's kind of this maybe slightly derogatory term called input substitution organic, you know, where it's like, okay, you're not spraying, you know, the, um, you're not, uh, perhaps you're not spraying a um, really noxious pesticide. So instead you're like, okay, what's the pesticide that's the organic certified pesticide? And I can just pour that in the tank instead of this, you know, but otherwise our farming practices are still really similar. Um, and so you get, you know, some benefits, but not the same as, yeah, if you're really trying to think about caring for the, 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 the land that you're growing on. Are organic pesticides any better? Or is it, I mean, it, it still has pesticide in the name. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the, I mean, I would say in general, yes, but that, yeah, it's still often, you know. Yeah, can, anything that's not derived from Agent Orange is probably a step in the right direction, right? Right, right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, yeah, the, the short answer is yes, but I would, the, the, yeah, there are plenty of those that you're still not wanting to ingest or get sprayed on. It's still not yeah. ideal. Right, it's still not, not ideal. way that we would want to be moving. Right. My understanding is that soy and corn are largely subsidized by the government, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that would be one alternative for organic farming is maybe work in some government subsidized formula where that would incentivize people to start to switch back to that as a way to counteract the direction we're going or would that not be feasible with how far with where we are i i i again not being a policy expert my my best understanding is yeah so much of our agriculture again we don't see it as much here, but if you you know go to the the Midwest and the Great Plains and you know some of the biggest you know agricultural places in our country, that landscape that you see of corn and soybeans or corn and more corn is really so strongly shaped by our federal policy. Yeah, shaped by the way that our you know we have these you know uh, you know subsidies and insurance products and all of these things that make it so that you're basically, yeah, guaranteed to make money if you grow these crops because the government's going to pay you if you don't make enough. And that model, not just for organic, but just if there were more crops, like if it, instead of it just being corn and soybeans, if it was like corn, soybeans, you know, alfalfa, wheat, you know, like if it was like six crops, all of a sudden you'd have a much healthier, more diverse landscape than we have there'd be better you know what we call crop rotations where you're cycling through these different crops and avoiding some of these pest problems avoiding some of the problems with runoff with these you know 
annual these 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 crops that are grown on a one year cycle um, versus things that are more perennial that can develop roots in the ground. Um, so yes, if organic had even somewhat more of a level playing field, like organic, it's it's a huge struggle for a diverse organic farm to get insurance for crop loss. Um, what's some you know something that's very very easy if you're just growing. I mean, I shouldn't say very, very easy because I've never had to, you know, apply for insurance for 10,000 acres of corn. But, you know, something that's a straightforward process that many people do every year um, is really way more onerous, way more tricky for someone that's growing a lot of small amounts of crops. The products, the insurance products that the government offers, you know, even outside of just subsidies, that the insurance is subsidized, so it is a form of subsidy, um, just don't really apply to the kind you know to diverse organic farms and if we want to encourage not just organics but if we want to encourage just diverse farming practices changing the way that those incentives work would to the best of my knowledge and what i've heard from many people would be like one of the single biggest things well yeah and especially with the insurance aspect that just incentivizes you to go conventional why be organic if i'm gonna have to pay more insurance and it's just gonna cut into my profit margin right right yeah, right. I mean, yeah, with a lot of the conventional growing, it's like it's just it's just win win. It's like you, okay, you have a crop loss, but you still make money, um, maybe not as much, you know. Versus, yeah, you have a good crop year. It also creates like a a situation where farmers are really willing to take risks, you know, to to do things that again, like we're talking about, like it's one more reason why these really really kind of high yielding but maybe fragile varieties like these corns that might be really disease susceptible you know and might completely fall flat and you see this you know um you know just um you know die in a in a bad year you know the disease or if it was a drought or whatever but in a good year they just go gangbusters it's that kind of gambling is encouraged by the fact that even if they have a total crop failure they're going to get paid by the government you know whereas for organics that it's not like that. Yeah, if you have a crop failure, maybe you're, you know, losing money this year. Maybe you can't keep the farm. Maybe you can't, you know, pay yourself. Maybe you're taking on more debt to get another season in. Or um, you're selling yeah. your farm to right another big right. aggregate. Right, right, right. Well, and then this is, I mean, so the systems are 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 so crushing because then what happens when you've got something that's a guaranteed profit? The way that the these large conventional commodity crops are is that now that means that the what's the limiting factor it's how much land you have and so now land prices go up to reflect the fact that this land can guarantee you a profit and investment firms come in and buy these large tracts of farmland based on the knowledge that this is you know a guaranteed profit and so now the people who are not part of that game who are trying to grow organically now their you know land costs are going up um, and so they can't necessarily you know buy into a farm or you know their their leases each year now are higher than they were before and so that's you know not only are they not benefiting from the system of insurance but they're kind of actively being hurt by it because it's everybody else's you know, the prices are reflective of the fact that everybody else can get this guaranteed money. So not to get too depressing, yeah. but it feels like if you're going organic, 
you were really you're going against the current. The system is almost set up to make you switch. You almost have to want to believe. It's a, it's almost more of a faith based thing that you you believe organic is the way to do it. That it's better for the land because it is, and you're gonna ride that out. Because why else would you do it? Why not switch conventional? The money is there, the insurance is there. You can get the seeds, less variability, less risk in some regard. I mean, why stay organic? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons uh, that people make those decisions. I think that for, you know, big companies that feel um, confident enough in getting a, you know, a premium price um, and accessing the organic market that's been growing and has continued to grow and kind of it's one of the fastest growing kind of food product segments around. Um, there are financial interest even at that large scale and, you know, taking that chance to be able to get that organic premium price to be able to get into that market. Um, but at a farm scale, I would say that talking to people who have, you know, a, a good perspective is people who have made that transition from conventional to organic production. And you hear people say um, that it's, they, they, yeah, one is kind of this feeling of as for themselves, like, I don't want to, you know, if, if they live on the farm, I don't want to, you know, be drinking poisoned well water. I don't want to worry about my grandkids getting, you know, sprayed. Um, uh, but also this, for a lot of farmers, again, kind of, and this is not like here on the North Coast, we're, we're talking about much smaller farms where they're diverse, where whether you're conventional or organic, often you're, you know, you're having to be creative in how you're, how you're growing, how you're marketing, how you're making a living growing. Um, but somewhere where there's this sort of more set path of what it means to run a farm in big ag land and whether it's in, uh, you know, in the Central Valley of California or if it's in, you know, the big field crop acreage of the Midwest that what you hear sometimes is that people, farmers feel like they were, everything was so prescribed that they were, you know, this is the seed you grow. This is when you spray. This is, you know, the tractor that you're buying and planting distance that you're doing and when you're harvesting and here's your buyer. And it's like, they're just very much sort of this cog in the machine, just um, with organic. A lot of the farm, the farmers that I've heard have said kind of these similar things of, they felt like they were a farmer again. They were making decisions. They were actively um, shaping, you know, what crops they were growing, how they were growing them. They were experimenting and innovating and excited about the practice of farming in a way that they hadn't been when they were on the conventional side. So just as a, you know, so there's that health side and then there's the kind of that lifestyle of, you know, what are you, what are you doing with your life? And if you feel like... Uh, you're not actually farming, you're just, you know, operating um, a tractor following the guidelines that have been handed to you. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's something that I think people really have enjoyed. But, the, but yeah, I, I think that the, the risks, like you said, the financial risks are, are real. And I mean, and, and, it, and to be fair, I mean, organic or conventional, Farming is a hard and risky 
job um, for, you know, and, and being a farm worker is, you know, grueling work and that just as general in our society, like, I don't think there's a lot of value placed on what that means. We don't, um, general people are not being that, that the money that's being generated in our agricultural system is so rarely going to the, the, the farmers and farm workers that are doing the work, you know, often that money is captured at the wholesale processor level. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that applies kind of across the board. Well, people today are so disconnected from their food. Right. Cause it's, it, the level of abstraction is just so great at this point. I mean, how, how many people actually know people that even grow their own food anymore? Right. Just, oh, I'm going to the supermarket. There's my food. Right. 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 Yeah. And we have expectations about what things should cost. And I mean, to be fair, it's, I mean, people struggle and I mean, food, it's hard when food is expensive. I don't know that it's, you know, I, I don't fully, you know, agree with kind of, well, you just, we all just need to pay more for food because I know it's not, you know, that's easy to say when you have plenty of money and it's not easy when you're scraping by and trying to feed your family. So. I recognize that, um, but it's not, yeah, the, like I said, I think that there's, there's a space where you can both, where farmers and farm workers can be making a living that reflects the amount of work that they're putting into it and that we're still able to eat healthy and eat affordably. Um, and, you know, frankly, a lot of that is around kind of where, where, where is the money being pulled out of the system? And it's often... Everybody wants their mm -hmm. cut. Mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to squeeze in uh -huh. whatever they can. That's yeah. the problem. Right, right. Topsoil is another aspect of this problem, right? Isn't the topsoil, especially in America, isn't it pretty shitty right now? I mean, soil is, and, and again, I have to get some, get, get a we're soil. Kind of yeah, yeah, get a, get a, get a, yeah, get a, get a soil expert to give you the details. But it, yeah, we are essentially, I mean, soil grows extremely slowly in general the you know generation of this we, we as a country and have this incredible resource of our soils it's probably one of the things that's you know allowed america to be such an agricultural you know power is because of having these you know rich deep soils that took you know thousands tens of thousands millions of years depending on where it was to develop um that has yeah is basically being mined um the nutrients in the soil itself um are being lost way faster than they naturally replenish themselves and so it's huge risk we kind of say okay well you're just you know well sure you can just grow the crops um wherever there's a flat piece of ground well really the way that we currently grow our food it relies on this resource that's been built up over all this long time that really hasn't doesn't get a lot of respect and does rotating crops help with that yeah so some of the i mean there there are a lot of different things that can help with that um one of them is yeah rotating crops especially including more perennial crops in your rotations things that last for more than one year that can develop roots that hold the soil in place that actually kind of help build the soil because you know soil is ultimately you know formed from the minerals below um you know the in the bedrock and in the kind of 
you know, these deeper parts of the more minerally parts of the soil combine with the organic matter that comes from the plants and from the roots and from the microbes that feed on those roots. And so, you know, perennial crops with their more robust rooting both protect the soil but also add to the soil. So having rotations, having just good conservation practices where you think about, um, you know, maybe you shouldn't, you know, till your soil on a steep hill, you know, parallel to the hill right before rain, um, you know, or before, you know, wind, um, thinking about, you know, how do you actually minimize the amount of tillage you're doing and be smart about it, create, you know, instead of just a single slope down a hill, creating terraces where you are minimizing the, you know, the amount of runoff that can happen, you know, maybe the, the, if there's any amount of water running, it just has to go for a little while before it hits another flat terrace and slows itself down. How do you kind of slow down the speed of the water, allow it to infiltrate back into the ground instead of running off along the surface? Um, yeah, there's a lot of good strategies, and these are things that are not organic specific by any means, but it's, pro it's another place where you have seen a lot of innovation come from organic farming and kind of transfer over more and more to the broader world. Which is not a bad thing. No. Innovation is always, I mean, innovation, especially we could swing it more towards the organic side. It, it sounds like that's really what we need. And to bring the cost down. Mm -hmm. I think if the cost came down and people realized, oh, it's competitive, we could buy organic and it's not going to break the bank. We don't have to support monocrop agriculture or go eat this pesticide ridden food. We could, we could do this. Feasibly, we could do this. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. it feels like that's the mm -hmm. direction we need to go in. Yeah. Well, this was, this was a scary conversation for me. I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> yeah. it confirmed some things and it uh -huh. freaked me out a little bit, but I'm happy to know that organizations like the one that you work for, Organic Sea Alliance, that you guys are out there and you guys are kind of fighting the good fight, helping farmers and showing that there is a viable way to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think, thank you. I think that a lot of what we do is recognizing and in support that it is that it is the farmers, it is the seed growers and seed savers that are doing the work that is not just doing the work of, you know, growing our food that we need or the seeds that we need, but also doing the work of building the path forward of like we like we talked about doing these innovations, developing new varieties that might be more resistant to, you know, climate change, um, developing varieties that are uh, more uh, nutrient dense, developing varieties that are resistant to diseases in more robust ways than lot of the the big companies and so our work is in support of that often so being able to bring to you know uh, help new seed growers be able to break into this um, livelihood helping connect them to you know equipment and resources and information helping connect them to each other so that people can learn from each other and can also kind of uh, build community and strategize together so I've I've felt really fortunate in all my time working with Organic Seed Alliance just to be able to work with some really passionate, hardworking, innovative, brilliant seed growers, and that's you know that's why I do this work. I really do like the aspect where you guys are almost open source in that sense with seeds. You guys aren't trying to patent anything. You're not trying to hoard the information that you're gathering. It's no, we're gonna we're gonna save seeds and we're gonna help you make whatever seeds you need 
that would be best for your land. Like that's what we're here for. And we're going to share that knowledge. I think more avenues that embrace that is a good thing. I 100% agree. Okay, well, Jerry, this was great, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Do you want to plug Organic Seed Alliance, where people can find that, where they can find you, maybe if they want to get involved? Yes. So if you want to learn anything about seed growing, about seed selection and plant breeding, um, about some of these issues around seed policy, seedalliance.org is our website. We have hundreds of publications, webinar recordings. We often are participating in different workshops at conferences. I'll be down at the Ecological Farming Conference and I guess next month, as well as we have a California Seed Summit next month, um, be the California Small Farms Conference and the Oregon Small Farms Conference um, next month. Um, and then locally here in Humboldt County, you can feel free to get in touch with me. My email is jared at seedalliance.org. And we have trials, and uh, typically we've been partnering with College of the Redwoods Farm down in Shively. And uh, if you ever want, we'll do tours and field days each year. So uh, if you go to our website, and you can either email me or sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get informed about when those are happening. Or feel free to yeah, just get in touch, and I'll be happy to give you a tour anytime if you're interested in checking out local seed excitement. The Humboldt Permaculture Guild is having their seed and plant exchange in March. It's always a fun activity, and this will be a chance for you to be able to... Uh, we'll be bringing a bunch of seeds that we grew, and some of the other local um, seed farmers and growers have seeds that they're sharing of locally adapted varieties, so it's a great place to meet other people. Um, if you're here in Humboldt County, you want to be able to connect to other, other seedy folks. All right. Well, Jared, thanks. Thank you.